This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Jim Finley. Jim is a clinical psychologist in Santa Monica, California, and a Merton scholar. Jim left home at the age of 18 and actually lived as a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane with Thomas Merton for six years. He's the author of Christian Meditation, Experiencing the Presence of God and the Contemplative Heart, as well as several Sounds True audio learning programs, including a program on Christian meditation and a program with Carolyn Mace on Transforming Trauma, a seven-step process for spiritual healing I spoke with Jim about the experience of the dark night of the soul, which is a topic that he leads retreats on. We also spoke about his spiritual approach to healing trauma. Jim, there's a topic that I've heard you teach on that I've never heard you speak on that I'd love to talk with you about which is the dark night of the soul, and how somebody knows when they're going through a dark night, some kind of initiation, and the difference between that and when they're just feeling down and depressed. Right. I mean, how, how do you know the difference? Yes. Is there a difference? Yeah, there, there, there is a difference. Um, I want to do this. I, first of all, the term the dark night of the soul most often refers back to the term that was uh, the term that term was used by Saint John of the Cross, the 16th century Spanish mystic Saint John of the Cross, and for Saint John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul is kind of the central operating kind of process through which a person uh, comes to mystical awakening. So I, I'd, I'd like to back up and uh, create the context in which Saint John of the Cross uses the word. Very good. This mystical sense because then that will provide the context in which we can uh, apply that to our life as to whether or not we're going through the dark night in this mystical sense that he was referring to. Because I think today a lot of us, we use the term in referring to any time we're going through a period of struggle or difficulties, especially if we find it very difficult to experience God's presence and what's going on or if we're not nurtured or sustained spiritually to help us get through whatever it is we're going through. Uh, we'll, we, we say we're going through a dark night, which is fine to use it that way. But St. John of the Cross certainly includes that experience, but he really means something much deeper than that and is something essentially very positive. It's, it's a gift, really. So I want to back up and just think out loud here for a few minutes on the dark night uh, as St. John of the Cross uses the word. Very we'll good. apply it to our daily experience. How would that be? Perfect. Good. Um, to try to get, to try to capture the sense of this is that uh, St. John of the Cross makes a distinction between what he calls a substantial union with God and effective union with God. And by substantial union, he means what we are substantially. And by what we are substantially, he means speaking in ultimate terms. That if we think of God as love, or we think of God as reality itself, infinite reality itself, that in love gives reality to all that is real, then ultimately speaking, we and the whole universe are the manifestations of infinite love. And to experience ourself as the manifestations of infinite love in a world 
in which everything we see is the manifestation of infinite love, is to experience our, what we are substantially, or what we are in truth. The difficulty is, is that we tend not to experience that. That we tend not to experience ourselves as the manifestations of infinite love, or we don't tend to realize that God's oneness with us is the reality of us. That is apart from being loved by infinite love into the present moment. We're, we're nothing. We're absolutely nothing. Uh, but being loved by infinite love into the present moment is what we are substantially. That is, it's what we are in truth. So that if we could experience here together all that we really are right now having this conversation, we'd experience God. That is, we'd experience God manifesting herself, manifesting himself, in the immediacy of this very conversation. The affective union refers, then, to the extent to which we experience this. And John of the Cross says, he says, my, my focus here is on this affective union. That is, on the extent to which we experientially realize ourselves to be God's manifested presence in the world. And John of the Cross says the difficulty is that we don't experience this because our, our finite ego, which is the context in which is the awakening occurs, and our finite ego, which is the freedom to which we assent to it, that is, we assent to the truth of ourself in love. This finite ego is split off from the truth of itself as a manifestation of love. And the ego sets up shop on its own. This is what Merton refers to as the false self. That is, I tend to imagine or go about as if I'm nothing but my finite ego. That is, I am nothing but my thoughts, feelings, memories. I'm nothing but the self that things happen to. This is, I'm nothing but this. And since I'm nothing but my finite self, I try to live in the light of this finite consciousness. But John of the Cross says this light of finite consciousness is actually darkness. Because it's a fundamental, it's very close to the Buddhist idea of ignorance. Because what I perceive to be the light in which I'm seeing everything around me is actually my ignorance of the truth of myself as the manifestation of infinite love. And he said, this is our dilemma. He said, this is our dilemma. So Jesus says, you have eyes to see and do not see. see the, the, we, there is the God-given capacity to see the God-given godly nature of ourselves, and we don't see it. And we're living in this state of darkness. And we think this darkness is light. So John of the Cross says then, the dark night of the soul is paradoxically the infusion of infinite light into our mind and heart. And this infinite light, which reveals who we really are to ourselves, blinds and overwhelms our finite consciousness. And we experience this inner illumination to be a kind of darkness. But if we stay the course, that is, if we don't panic, if we just calmly be very quietly open to what's happening to us. He says, oh, night lovelier than the dawn. We realize that here what we thought was the light, that is, our finite consciousness as having the final say in who we are, was actually a kind of darkness we were living in and, don't, and didn't realize it. And by accepting that, we undergo this metamorphosis of consciousness and we come into this spiritual awakening, this spiritual consciousness, which he called mystical marriage, or unitive consciousness with God. So this is, so St. John of the Cross, he, he certainly means to include by the dark night uh, struggles, but the struggles are paradoxical, in that the struggle has to do with the futility of trying to live on our own terms. And whereas we think that's uh, a misfortune, 
Actually, the inability to live on our own terms is the beginning of the possibility of living in a radically new way, which is awakening to this affective union of ourselves as the manifestation of God's love in the world. Can you tell me, Jim, what was happening in the biography of John of the Cross when he went into the dark night and then came out of it? What was the actual content of his life at that point? Uh, John of the Cross was, uh, um, as a young man, he was studying for the priesthood, and he, he got ordained to the priesthood in the, in the Carmelite order of the Catholic Church in Spain, 16th century. And he joined Teresa of Avila in the reform of the Carmelite order. It was a reform to return the order back to a life of simplicity and poverty and prayer and so on. And the, the institutional status quo at the time uh, didn't take uh, kindly to this implications of this reform, that they were not being true to their own calling. And so they imprisoned him, they captured him, and uh, imprisoned him, put him in a little, small, little dark cell there in the monastery. And um, he, he lived there under very arduous conditions there. And he really felt the sense of betrayal and the sense that these are the people that he trusted. I mean, these were the people that were supposed to be living up to this Christ-like ideal of love and so on. And he went into a kind of inner despair. I mean, he really sensed the isolation and loss and all of this. And it's in that darkness that he broke through and experienced an inner illumination that transformed his whole life. And it's, it's in those circumstances that he experienced this awakening. As we were saying earlier, that he experienced the invincible love of God to be the reality of his own nature, like an unconquerable love that no one could do anything to. And he began to write poetry. It came to him first as poetry, and then when he escaped and got out and continued the reform, he wrote commentaries on that poetry, which became the mystical teachings of St. John of the Cross. It sounds in hearing about his life that the dark night of the soul was a passage that once he went through it, he didn't necessarily return to that kind of despair and sense of separation from God. Is that accurate? Well, I, I, um, I want to back up a little bit in terms of what he actually says about this. He says that sometimes what happens, and this may well be true of him, that sometimes the, the breakthrough into this spiritual illumination is so uh, profound and thorough that a person never is really quite the same again. That is, that the clarity is so absolute. And, and the analogy in Buddhist terms would be what the Buddha experienced on the night of his enlightenment. And uh, that sometimes it is that way, and it's quite possible uh, that with him there, there was that kind of radicality to it. However, I think uh, even in his own life, and as it happens in most people, and this is what he writes about, that this breakthrough is, doesn't tend to be a single cataclysmic event, but rather it's an unfolding metamorphosis of consciousness in which our illusions of ourselves, of being separate or other than infinite love, dissolve in love. But for him, as you indicated, does tend to have that kind of radical um, nature to it, this experience that he had in the prison. So going back to my original question, which is distinguishing between a state of despair and depression and what could be considered a dark night passage, it, it sounds like it, it might have something to do with how someone approaches their despair or depression. That with a certain kind of approach, it could be a passage that could lead to the kind of transformation you're talking about. Is that fair? It is. I want just respond in a general way first and apply as he speaks of this as he experienced it in prayer and meditation. Let's say a person is going through a, a, a struggle. And let's say in that struggle, the dilemma is heightened all the more 
and that in the struggle they cannot experience spiritual nurturance, like they feel somehow lost or without spiritual support. And as they go through that struggle, it starts to dawn on them, and, and at first it's so subtle they don't realize that it's happening. It starts dawning on them that in the midst of this struggle, they're being strangely um, illumined by a, in a depth of consciousness that they never knew before. And they realize that they're established or grounded in something that transcends what's happening to them. Insofar as they begin to intuit that, we would say that the struggles that they're going through are not just psychological struggles and hardship, but rather is an experience of the dark night. Can you share with me a little bit from your own life what you've discovered about passing through a dark night of the soul? Well, uh, I think for me what the experience was is that uh, when I went to the monastery... And this is when you were in your late teens? Yeah, my late teens. I was uh, 17 when I graduated from high school and then uh, just had my 18th birthday and entered the monastery. And when I entered the monastery, this kind of cloistered, silent monastery, I, at first, I mean, I guess my first year or two there, there was just a lot of, um, I don't know, I was very taken by it. There was a a sense of consolation or a deep sense of inner peace about it. I was just, I found it quite amazing, really. It was, uh, my sense, it was, it was like having a dream while I was awake. That is the silence and the bowing. Everything had a kind of divine quality to it. And then in the midst of all of that, I, I went into a kind of um, phase of just feeling very lost inside and uh, didn't understand where it was coming from. I think in part it was coming from the abuse I experienced at home in childhood kind of seeping up through into my consciousness in the silence. I think that was certainly part of it. But at any rate, I had found myself in this monastery without any basis for interior support. That is, I, I couldn't find access to a sense of the presence of God that brought me there. And um, it's in the context of going through that experience that I was reading St. John of the Cross. And I began to understand my experience in the light of St. John of the Cross's teachings. And uh, the experiences that I had there in prayer and meditation were like radical breakthrough uh, experiences for me that came out of the very darkness that I was experiencing. And uh, that's, that's how I experienced it. Now, can you say a bit more about the attitude of meditation and prayer that can be helpful during a dark period? What kind of meditation and prayer? What kind of approach? Well, the approach St. John of the Cross takes, he says that the the norm of meditation and prayer is where we sit in a kind of uh, childlike sincerity and in that sincerity reflect upon the things of God where we prayerfully reflect upon spiritual things and the spiritual path that we're committed to. And he says in that daily quiet time, we tend to experience a certain sense of nurturance from that, or we gain insights into that, or we do spiritual reading, or we journal. It's kind of a, a grounding place for us. And he says for many people, they spend their whole life in that, and that daily quiet time continues to be a grounding time for them. And that grows and gets deeper and richer, and their insights get deeper and so on. But he says what happens with some people is that when they're in their daily quiet time in this kind of discursive meditation, using thoughts and images and a kind of devotional piety, he says three things start to happen, which he sees as the three signs of entrance into the dark night. He says, one, a person starts to notice 
that they no longer experience any sense of God's presence. He says this absence of the felt sense of God's presence all by itself is not a sign that one's called to the dark night. He says because maybe it has to do with things that are going on in your life. So if you're harboring resentment or there's uh, other things that are going on in your life or you're in some ways doing violence to yourself and so on, it'll, it'll start showing up in your prayer. He says, but let's say you look at that and you can't explain this dryness that you're experiencing in those terms. Secondly, he says, not only do you realize that you're not being nurtured and reflecting on the things of God, he says, you realize you're not being nurtured and reflecting on the things of this earth either. That is, whereas before, reflecting on things that were going on in your daily work or relationships or things that were a genuine cause of happiness, you realize there's a certain kind of pervasive inadequacy in all those things. And he says, this all by itself doesn't mean you're in the dark, called into the dark night. He says, he doesn't use these terms. But what he says, in effect, is maybe you're depressed. You know, that maybe you're, you're just not capable of experiencing the vitality in your life, and you need to do your best to tend to that. He said, but let's say you look at that, and you say you, that, that that doesn't check out. You don't think that's it either. And he says you're kind of caught between these two kinds of powerlessness, the ways of being powerless. You feel powerless to be nurtured in spiritual things. And simultaneously, you feel powerless to be nurtured by regrounding yourself in earthly things. And he says, in that twofold state of powerlessness, you're inclined, and these are the words he uses, to sit in a general loving awareness without regard for anything in particular. That is, you simply are drawn to sit in a kind of quiet, intuitive attentiveness in silence. And it's in that subtle silence that one secretly awakens to the truth of oneself as a manifestation of God's presence in the world. That's that's one of the ways in which he talks about this. Hmm, interesting. So what you're saying is, if I'm sitting in meditation and I'm relishing in the light of God's presence, then that's a certain type of, of way of being. Or if I'm sitting in silence and I'm sort of jazzed about my life, that's a different way, or if both are true, but the, the dark night comes when neither of those things are present. And then, exactly. I just, and then I just sit there in that empty, dark space. Exactly. He, uh, I don't want to read a nice little passage here to you where you kind of you get a flavor how he talks about this. It's very lovely, actually. That's exactly it, that there's, we can sit there kind of turned on by spiritual things, and maybe genuinely so, in kind of an emotional enthusiasm. And war, he says, war, we can feel a very genuine enthusiasm about the things that are going on in our life. And he says both of those are important. I mean, both of those are important aspects of human experience. But he says the thing about both of them is that they're finite. That is, the, the insights that we have are finite, the emotions that we're having are finite, the gratification that we experience in those modes of consciousness are finite. And because they're finite, they fall infinitely short of what ultimately fulfills our heart, which is an infinite union with the infinite. And so the dark night is one is simultaneously powerless to be gratified in, be, in being energized by earthly things or by divine things. And in that painful powerlessness, if one doesn't panic, that is, if one just quietly sits with it, one sees that one's interiorly drawn to rest in this general loving awareness. And in the subtlety of that silent awareness, is where this divine union begins to uh, emerge in a person. Now, you mentioned that you were originally, when you were drawn to the monastery as a, a teenager in your late teens, 
that part of what was coming up for you was the pain of your own childhood. How did your own experiences of a, of a difficult childhood, a childhood in which you experienced um, physical abuse, how did that map onto this description of what was happening for you in the monastery in terms of the passage of the dark night, through the dark night? Well, I'll, I'll answer this in a way or try to be just true to what my actual experience uh, of this was. And within the constraints of time here to do it in a way that kind of holds to the essence of it without going into all the nuances of it. The, the essence of it for me was that I, I lived in this home where there was this abuse, this physical, sexual, emotional abuse. In high school, I discovered Thomas Merton and that there were places called monasteries, which I saw as places where I could transcend my suffering and kind of find God in silence away from all the trauma that I was living in. I left my home, I entered the monastery, became a monk, and was living in, the, in silence in the monastery. And in the silence of the monastery, I started reading St. John of the Cross and uh, very deeply spoke to me, and I had Thomas Merton as my spiritual director and just the monastic life was a very kind of rich deep experience for me then in in the silence of the monastery I I began to experience a a loss of the original sense of devotional fervor that I felt and I began to feel a kind of uh, an emptiness or an inability to experientially sense God's presence And in hindsight, looking back at it, I think I would attribute some of that to the unprocessed trauma that I had been through, starting to percolate up through in the silence and access my consciousness. I'm sure that contributed to it. But at any rate, I was in this state of being unable to be consoled or to experience God's presence. And reading John of the Cross, I experienced it in those terms. And Thomas Merton gave me permission to spend uh, so many hours each day in the hayloft of an abandoned sheep barn. And one day I was up in the loft of that barn and I was reading uh, the Psalms. And the, the, the loft doors were always kept open without over a meadow. And I was walking back and forth reading the Psalms in this state of... Um, kind of inner emptiness that I was referring to here, this kind of unconsoled state. And all of a sudden, there was this vivid realization that what all along I had thought of as the air was literally God. That is, that I was, that I was walking back and forth in God, breathing God. And that the God that I was breathing knew me like through and through and through and through and through and through and through as compassion. It was my sense of it as compassion. And there was a clear sense that no matter where I would go to, to, to get away from this, there was nowhere to go because the, the atmospheric totality of this compassion that I was breathing, which was sustaining my very life, you know, that I was living my life on the interiority of God. That was the clear sense of it. And there, were, there, was no, uh, there was no emotions with it. There was no visual things with it. It, was, it just had a literalness to it. Like, it was just, like, completely true. And that state of, of breathing God and living my life in God and God knowing me through and through and through His compassion, that stayed with me the whole afternoon, I chanted Vespers that night that way, I fell asleep that way, and I walked around that way for several days. And on Sundays, we were allowed to walk um, in the woods outside the monastic enclosure, uh, enclosure walls around the monastery. And I was walking up this little road this way, breathing God, and I turned a corner in this little dirt road that went up to this lake I used to sit at. And there was a little tree hanging out over the road. And I reached out and I touched one leaf of the tree. And I looked up in the sky and there was one cloud in the sky. And I said out loud, it's one. 
That is, I was so vividly aware that the God I was breathing, the cloud, the, the ground I was standing on, the leaf that I was touching myself was just completely, absolutely one. And it was a windy day. I sat on the edge of a hillside, big meadow there. And uh, it just, uh, just indescribable, just absolutely indescribable. And I came, I walked back to the monastery, and the, the, the immediacy of it dissipated. But I'd say the underlying, like, tangible clarity of it, it's, it's never left me, really. And after that experience, I, that's where I really felt I, I was home free. It was I really felt that, that I, when I would read John of the Cross or Meister Eckhart or these mystics, and I really felt that at least I was beginning to get a very strong experiential taste of, of what, what these mystics were talking about. And it was at that time then that I was sexually abused by one of the monks in the monastery, one of the priests in the monastery. Wow. And I, I was devastated, absolutely devastated. Part of my abuse at home was sexual abuse. I didn't see it coming. I didn't even think it was possible. Didn't, didn't even think it was possible. And I guess analogous to John of the Cross feeling betrayal and so on, I just, I just uh, decompensated. I became dissociative and I became depressed and um, felt lost, really completely lost. And I, uh, I didn't tell anybody what happened. I went up to see Merton the night I left. I talked to him in his hermitage, and uh, I didn't tell him what happened. And uh, I left... Uh, returned home and uh, kind of dropped out of the church, started drinking a lot, and uh, just kind of a lost soul for a while, I guess. And I, I uh, got into a dysfunctional marriage and have two wonderful children from that marriage, but still I was a pretty wounded guy. And it wasn't until uh, I think I, I started getting my footing again in spirituality. I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere, this book on Thomas Merton and the True Self, and I started giving retreats. But it wasn't until I got a scholarship for a doctor in clinical psychology that I started looking at my own trauma. And what I discovered was that, that I could not pray my pain away. That was the experience that no matter how much I contemplated and prayed, it couldn't really get at the internalized trauma that was inside of me. But psychology alone couldn't get to the root of my suffering. And I would think up to this moment, I always saw the moment my father was beating me and the moment in the sheep barn as being at polar opposites of each other. And that by staying in the, the, the kind of ecstasy of non-dual consciousness, I would never have to deal again with suffering. And then I realized that instead of being polar opposite of each other, they form kind of a circle, and the intensity of those two moments touch each other. And it was only by bringing non-dual consciousness to bear on my suffering, instead of using it as a way to flee from it, uh, that I was able to find this kind of unitive, transformative uh, journey for myself that led me out of my impasse that I was in. So I then saw, which gets back to responding to your question, then, I then saw that my dark night, that is the whole nightmare that I went through in all of its details, that by, by facing and walking through that night, that it brought me to the discovery of something within myself which was invincible. But it remained invincible only as long as I was willing to let it be the basis out of which I would touch my suffering. And I took that insight, which is really, I guess, been a guiding principle of my life, really. So when I started working with people in therapy who were coming in to see me in therapy. I began to see the therapeutic interactions with people to be the playing out of the same dynamic in their life. And, and that's how I experienced it. So when you say that, the therapeutic interaction playing out this dynamic, you mean being able to hold the, the vast space, that transcendental space, what you call the, the non-dual awareness space, 
simultaneously with the suffering. How, how did you see them as, I mean, you said that they make a circle, they're the same thing. How, how did you get there? And how, how, how do you get there? Well, yes, well, let me, I'll go back to how I experienced this in therapy first and with myself and talk about how to get there. How I experienced it, how I, in terms of trying to find a way to put words to this, how it comes to me to say it is that the is that the when the person comes into therapy and they're willing they get to the point where they're willing to share what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade them nor abandon them they unexpectedly come upon within themselves this preciousness that is in the very intimacy of the willingness to become completely vulnerable they unexpectedly come upon within themselves a depth of preciousness where there's no words for it, really, which manifests itself right in the room. That is, I'm really here, or I really count, or, or, or my life is a gift, or, or there's, there's something about me that no matter what happened to me, it doesn't have the power to destroy who I essentially am. They experience that. And when I experience it, they're experiencing it, and bear witness to them. And I say back to them, you know, I, I think that what's going on in the room right now, I mean, the way you are with me right now, this is what got abused. You know, this is what your parents didn't see. But this is what, I mean, whatever it is. That then the, the therapeutic alliance, that is, the, our relationship with each other, we form kind of a monastic community of two, or like a sangha of two. We're like two, like wounded people who have experientially access within ourselves a preciousness that transcends suffering. And the therapeutic sessions from that point on become a process in which a person learns to reground themselves in that preciousness and out of that preciousness to keep touching the edges of their suffering until the suffering little by little by little dissolves in that preciousness. And it's a tricky business because once the suffering gets reactivated, the person can get re-traumatized by it. And so the person has to learn this art form of staying grounded in the presence of their suffering without being re-traumatized by their suffering. And in that balance to kind of learn to go through this healing journey. Now this circle that you said, which is seeing some kind of um, brilliant equivalency between the pain we've gone through and our most transcendent moments. Exactly. How did you get, explain that to me? I'm not sure I get that. Well, and I think this is where it kind of defies logic and, and so on, but when you're in the presence of it, you can, you can, you can center in the presence of it. I'll put it as it comes to me uh, when I'm in the presence of it and someone who's experiencing this in my presence who's kind of going through this process. And then I'll apply it to myself. And I think ultimately how it applies to all of us. Uh, I, I want to use another example. I want to use another example and maybe it's more universal or tangible. Um, the example is imagine um, there's a friend who's partner, spouse, is dying of cancer. And the, the partner is in a hospice. And you've known both of them for a long time. And the friend invites you to come with them to the hospice to visit the dying partner. And uh, you go. And you sit in a corner of the room and you observe your friend pull a chair up to the bedside of the dying partner. And the person who's dying is having a hard time speaking. And your friend says to the partner, uh, the spouse, you know, you don't have to try to speak, you know, just relax. The person just pulls up a chair and uh, sits there in silence and holds their hand. And as you watch them together in that moment, it's so unexplainably clear that as sad as this moment is, and it's immensely sad in terms of what they've been through already, what they're going to go through, what they're going now, it is also clear that it's not just that. That in some strange way, you feel privileged to be there. 
and you intuit that you're on holy ground. That the that the depths of suffering open out into the depths of pure liberation from suffering. This mysterious alchemy where liberation from suffering and suffering are mysteriously intertwined with each other. This is the mystery, really. It's, it's freedom from the tyranny of suffering in the midst of suffering. And once, once we discover that, I mean, once we personally come upon that, then I think then we're, I, mean, I just think that's just a, a fundamental uh, source of uh, inner peace in our life. I think what's so wonderful about your work, Jim, is is often when I listen to spiritual teachers, there's some way that we're getting away from our suffering, but not that we're able to be free from our suffering in the midst of it, right, right in the midst of it. Right. Yeah. I, I once, I share with people, I went into Merton once for spiritual direction, one of these one-on-one sessions, and they went and complaining about something, I forget what it was. And uh, he said to me, he said, as long as one person on this earth suffers, you suffer too. He said, well, there's no validity in living in a place like this. He said, we don't live the spiritual life to find some rarefied atmosphere where we're exempt from the human condition. Rather, we, we live this interior life to experience the suffering of the whole human family expressing itself in the intimacy of our suffering. But if we, if we can, this very conversation we're having here, if we can see how this suffering is, is intimately dissolving in a compassion that's infinitely greater than suffering, it doesn't, it doesn't remove suffering from us. I think sometimes, uh, in a Christian context, talking to people where they talk about God loving us, and then why does God let this happen, and and so on. And when you look at it in these terms, the whole mystery of the cross in, in the Christian tradition is a revelation that God spares us from nothing. Whatever it means that God takes care of us, it clearly does not mean that God prevents tragic, really cruel things from happening to us. It clearly doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that it's possible to discover that God, that God infinitely sustains us in all things. And to be intimately and infinitely sustained from the tyranny of suffering and the midst of suffering, then this is spiritual liberation. Because why would I think that being on the spiritual path makes me exempt from the human condition? I mean, isn't, isn't it rather the spiritual path should ground me in the courage to live in the human condition with a sense of, uh, of vitality and, and openness? And um, I think it's all bound up on this intimate interface of suffering and liberation from suffering or the oneness of birth and death. Now, you mentioned that one of the risks or challenges is when we open up to our own suffering or someone else's suffering that we can be re-traumatized or it can be too much, we can't bear it. How do we create a, a field of presence, of, of God's love that's strong enough to be able to really be with our own or another person's suffering? Well, it depends. I mean, it, it, it depends on... I mean, there's so many different variables that kind of affect it, but just a few kind of guiding things that tend to pertain to what you're asking. You know, I think that one thing that's often extremely helpful is being able to, to, to share the suffering in the presence of the friend. That is, the, the, the friend in here meaning the one who, out of their love for us, is willing and able to listen to us in our suffering. And as they listen to us in our suffering, we can tell by the way they're listening to us and by the way that they're looking at us uh, that they recognize something in us that transcends what we're going through and what's happened to us or what we've done. That we see reflected 
in the eyes of the one who loves us, a grounding place that helps us to stay grounded while in the process of experiencing our suffering. Then little by little by little, we learn to internalize that presence so we can be more grounded in the presence of our own suffering. So that's one thing that helps, and I, and I think in-depth therapy works on that paradigm, really. In other words, I, I think the, 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 the alliance between the therapist and the person in therapy is a kind of a holding environment in which the therapist, uh, like presence to the person, is precious in their suffering is the context in which little by little by little they can internalize that and learn to kind of stay stabilized in the presence of their own suffering, which is kind of coming into spiritual adulthood, mm -hmm. I suppose. Where, it gets, where this gets kind of tricky is the intensity of the suffering that's been experienced. So to the extent a person has been severely traumatized, whereas they start to talk about the trauma, they start to decompensate, for example. You know, say they have flashbacks or panic attacks, or they, they start hitting themselves or self-cutting or sexually acting out. And, uh, you know, this is where the more things like this are true, then the slower the person needs to go and the more carefully it needs to get worked out. Is that what you mean by the term decompensate? What, what do you mean by that? Well, decompensate would mean, um, let's say that I'm, I'm coming to you and I'm sharing about how I was abused. Yeah. And as I share with you how I was raped or beaten, whatever it is, and the very act of talking about it starts opening up my emotions around what happened to me. And as the emotions get stronger and stronger, I begin to re-experience the trauma. Right. That is, I start to decompensate. I might start to hyperventilate. I may start to sob uncontrollably. I may start feeling that I'm leaving my body. You know, I start to find it more and more difficult to stay present in my body, in the room, while I talk to you about what's happening. And at that point, I start to be re-traumatized by sharing the experience of my trauma. Because that's what post-traumatic stress disorder is, is that the past refuses to stay the past. And in the presence of a triggering event, the person re-experiences the original trauma experientially as if it were actually reoccurring. And um, Judith Herman, in her book Trauma and Recovery, one of the key works on all of this, points out that nothing really happens in this healing process without safety. And so the safety is to protect the interactions from getting to the point where the person is re-traumatized by it. The goal is to be able to stay grounded in the presence of the pain without drowning in it. Because repeatedly learning to do that over and over and over, a person builds self-confidence in their ability to stay grounded in the presence of their suffering. And here, here's where we see that spirituality can become a huge resource for them in helping them do that. Can you say more about that? Yes. The more I, in the very way we were talking about earlier in terms of contemplation and so on, the more I have tasted that in me that infinitely transcends circumstance, the more confidently I can approach the circumstances in which my suffering occurred. Does that make sense in a way? Yeah. See, in other words, the more it has become so clear to me, like as, like as clear as the palms of my own hands, that although I am ego, I'm clearly not just ego, because I've tasted for myself that in me, that which is, which is infinitely more than ego. To the extent I, I must, I'm grounded in that truth experientially, just to that extent, it can, I can draw upon that as a resource that gives me the courage and the wisdom to touch my suffering without falling prey to the illusion that that suffering has the power to name who I am. Because I know in the light of my spiritual awakening that that's not true. Now, I would say this, though, too, that a person can be an enlightened or, let's say, uh, a deeply spiritually awakened person who is going through trauma work and even though the person is grounded in that experience, 
insofar as they have unprocessed trauma, they can still momentarily be flooded and overwhelmed by that trauma. They need to be careful just like everybody else. It's just that their groundedness in spirituality and their meditation practice and all the rest of it is a huge resource for them in courageously returning to the task, getting regrounded in the love, touching the suffering with love until the suffering dissolves in love, which is a huge resource for them. And then in the end, when they come out the other end of it, they realize the whole process was essentially spiritual to begin with. That is, it all has to do with our true identity uh, uh, and being that which infinitely transcends ego. As a mystery, this manifesting itself as the ego, as all things. And then, Jim, I'm just curious as we come to a close here, I know that you've developed now a seven-step model for spiritual healing and that in these seven steps there's a pivotal point that you call the axial moment. There's this pivotal point in spiritual healing. And, and I wonder if you can share with us what that is, the axial moment. Well, we've been, we've been talking about it here Really, in other words, the axial moment is a term that I use to describe part at least what we've been discussing here. I, I, I'm using the term axis here as um, how it comes to me is that a person comes into therapy and one session follows another and insight follows another and it all starts getting opened up. And then there comes the moment on which the whole course of therapy quietly turns. And it's the moment at which they risk sharing what hurts the most. And in that vulnerability, instead of being annihilated by the vulnerability, they unexpectedly come upon within themselves this preciousness. This unexpected disclosure of their invincible preciousness and their fragility. I call that moment the axial moment. That the whole course of therapy quietly turns like a wheel on its axis, turns on that moment. And then therapy is kind of a microcosm of all of life turns on that moment. And that's what I mean by the axial moment. The axial moment is the moment at which when I risk sharing what I fear the most, instead of being annihilated, I'm liberated. That unexpected liberation is, uh, is, the, is what comes out of the axial moment. Well, Jim, I want to thank you. I have to say this has been one of the uh, deepest conversations I've had on Insights at the Edge, and I'm really appreciative. Thank you. Well, well thank you. Um, for just, uh, just out of our friendship, I guess, just with your skills as an interviewer, too, I just, um, it was a gift for me, too, so I thank you for it, too. This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com.